0: You may be seated. Tonight we're gonna to celebrate. Um, tonight we're going to celebrate Pastor Mark's birthday, as you know, and the birthday cake's back there. And so the preacher shouldn't go along. Shouldn't go too long. <laughs> All right. Well, let's just endeavor to be led by the Lord. Amen. I want to thank you, myself, for Mary and me. We are refreshed. And um, you know, it's just always good to minister the Word of God where, wherever you go. But in some places, you uh, are ministered to and, and refreshed. And that is true here. It's just like a refueling stop for us. So we, we really, really have enjoyed it. it it's been fun, OK? That may not sound like a spiritual word, but it's been fun. I want to talk to you tonight about a woman of the city and a blind Pharisee. He wasn't physically blind, but he was uh, morally blind and uh, blinded by his own self righteousness. In Luke chapter 7, we have this passage beginning at verse 36. Uh, But I want to just give you a quick preview of the whole chapter because. Uh, the Lord inspired, the Holy Spirit, of course, is the divine author of the word, but he inspired Luke to record this entire chapter as he did, and uh, in the order in which he did. And I want to just look at it very quickly. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to skim this a little bit, and um, uh, just, just to highlight the main passage. So... In the beginning of the chapter, we have the healing of the centurion's servant, and you know that Jesus was on his way to the centurion's house when the centurion said, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm paraphrasing, okay? I'm not just reading this. Uh, uh, Don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled. Uh, He said, I have not, uh, I tell you, not even in Israel, in Luke 7, 9, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Uh, And uh, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Then, so from there, from the healing of the centurion's servant, we go to this little town, Nain, and Jesus encounters a funeral procession. The um, only son of a widow has died, and they're carrying him to his barrel. When Jesus encounters this group, he stops the procession. He tells uh, the mother, he says, do not weep. He says, don't weep. Don't weep. And he says to the, to the, to the corpse, <laughs> It says he spoke to that corpse and said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Interesting phrase, uh, verse here, verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. There's an awakening of faith. These things were not done in a corner. People knew about the healing ministry of Jesus. Uh, People believed in him. They were following him. Many, many people believed in him. Uh, Then in verse 18, though, we we have John the Baptist, who's in a time of trouble, and his faith is wavering. So he sends some disciples to, to Jesus and says, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I mean, John's just cutting it right to the chase there. And the response of Jesus to this question is, it's pure Jesus. It's just so um, typical of the Lord. Did, did, did the Lord say, yes, I'm the one to come? No, he doesn't say, yes, yes, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one to come. He doesn't say that. He says, he says to the guys that have come, he says, um, uh, the scripture says, in that hour he'd healed many, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And so this is what the answer Jesus gives to them. He says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus is provoking John the Baptist to faith. He's not just giving him the answer. He's making John... Uh, work for it in a little bit, exercise his own faith. John, what have you seen? And on the basis of these things that John has seen, uh, the conclusion John is going to come to is that this man is deity. This man is God. This man who's going about and doing these things is a great prophet. And God has visited his people. Then Jesus begins to talk to the crowd about John the Baptist, and he points some things out about them, about him in, in um, uh, first of all, verse 20, verse 30, uh, let, let's say verse 29, when all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, or they justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Now that is in the chapter for a reason. We're coming to one of the main sections of this chapter, but it's not by accident that Luke uh, makes this identification about the Pharisees and lawyers in contrast to those that are believing in Jesus. The centurion, the Gentile, he believes the, 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 the people at the funeral procession uh, for the son of the widow of Nain, they believe they believe he's a great prophet, in fact, which is a, a word we'll see later, in contrast, later. He's a great prophet, and God has visited us. John the Baptist, we know, was persuaded by the evidence. And Jesus tells this uh, uh I don't know what you'd call this story where he says, what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. Uh, they're playing a game. Uh, this is a children's game. And it shows you, as one scholar said, this shows you how, what a man of the people Jesus was, that he was in tune with the nursery rhymes of the children. What they're doing is they, they play wedding and they play funeral. These are big events in a small town uh, in the first century. You know, in in Israel, this is what children would do. These are these are big happenings, and so they play wedding and they play funeral. But here in this 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 story, I don't know if you'd call it a parable. Jesus is relating what the children do. They call to one another and say, "Well, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We we invited you to play wedding, you didn't want to play wedding. We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. We we played funeral, and you didn't want to play funeral." And the idea is that. Uh, John the Baptist comes and telling people to repent, and they didn't want to hear John the Baptist. And then Jesus comes, and they say, well, he's eating and drinking with sinners. And, uh, you know, they didn't want to hear Jesus. Jesus was coming with a message of repentance and forgiveness, and they didn't want to hear John. They didn't want to hear Jesus. They just didn't want to hear. Now we come to the, what I consider the main event here in this chapter. And we'll read this. One of the Pharisees, okay, referencing the Pharisees before, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, And now he's about to find out that Jesus is a prophet <laughs> because he said that to himself. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. And here Jesus goes into this a parable about a moneylender. But before we go there, I want to just make a few observations. First of all, you have to wonder why did... Simon invite Jesus to his house. He obviously did not believe in Jesus. He did not believe he was a prophet. Apparently, he's one of the Pharisees that has rejected the counsel of God. He has not received the baptism of John the Baptist, whom God sent as the messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. This Pharisee uh, is not a believer. You don't say... If this man were a prophet, he would know. If you really believed he was who everyone else was saying saying he was. So in contrast to the centurion, in contrast to the widow of Nan and the people in that funeral procession, he doesn't buy it. He's not buying in. And um, secondly, this is some kind of dinner party, okay? And uh, I, I get this, you know, living on the equator, what these homes are like. I mean, they're not like uh, construction up here or in most of the lower 48. They'd have open uh, areas that, you know, because the temperatures in the, in the summer are, are nice, and this is accessible to the public. And actually, it was not uncommon for uh, people to show up at a dinner party like that. They're not one of the invited guests. They're not eating, but they would come and watch. It's something to do, you know, in a, in a small town. And so it's not unusual that this woman of the city, who was a sinner, it's not unusual that she would show up at that banquet. What's unusual is a few things. Number one, um, she's crying and loudly. We know because if you, if you look that word up, how she's weeping, she's weeping or wailing She's crying loudly. Now, if you have someone like that at a dinner party, you know, people get nervous. It's it's a little unusual. It's it's out of the ordinary. And then secondly, her hair is down. Now, in that time, in that culture, that's a sign of promiscuity. It's actually grounds for divorce, for for a, a married woman to appear in public with her hair down like that just sends a signal i know that's difficult for us to understand but listen if you shake hands with the wrong hand in some places in asia you'll offend people you know that and we don't we don't think of that but that's that's true you can deeply offend people uh you know you can't even in in thailand it's it's rude to cross your legs and have the sole of your shoe pointing to someone or to reach over their head. If you have a prayer line, you have to be careful you don't reach over people's head. And we think, well, why would that be offensive? Well, I don't know. I'm not Thai, But it, but it is. And here in this culture, it was deeply offensive for a woman to come in with her hair down. Okay. So there are some unusual things happening here. And apparently she's she, she has been ministered to by Jesus because she heard that He was there, and she's come to find Him, and she's brought this very expensive ointment. M- most people estimate this this ointment probably would have cost a year's wages, and and you do have to wonder where she got the money to buy this ointment. But she's been changed. She has been profoundly changed. And if she did buy that ointment with her earnings, she's doing the only thing a a born-again person could do. She's pouring it out on the Savior. All right. And the other thing that I think is interesting here is that, you know, the, the way they had banquets there, they'd have, they would recline on a couch and their head would be toward the table. Their feet would be extending away from the table. So that's why his feet are accessible to her. And she comes up. It's not premeditated that she's going to wash his feet with her hair. She comes up and she begins to weep. She begins to weep loudly and... and You know, I I imagine sobbing. She has been so affected by the gospel. She has been profoundly, fundamentally changed. I, I like to call this message changing deeply. What changes a person deeply? I think many of us can think back to the day when we first I don't know whether we found God or he found us. When he when he got a hold of us. You remember that? Something changed you. And and it and it wasn't people. It was the spirit of God working through the word of God. And it changed you deeply. Changed, turned you inside out. There's people in this room you ch- you changed your whole life and dire- direction and careers and course of life because of, a, of an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and how we long for people to have that experience where they're not just coming and, and, and doing things by rote doing Christian, you know, Christianity by the numbers, you know, painting by the numbers but there's a spontaneous outflow of love and change and true uh, renewal in, in a person's heart and this, that's what's happened with this woman. She's done such a, a 180 it's just remarkable. That just doesn't happen by chance. And she's, you know, later Jesus tells her, your sins are forgiven. And he refers that, you know, she loved much because she, she, she's she been forgiven much. We'll read that. So this has happened, you know, very, very likely. It's happened before this dinner party. And she wants to pour out her gratitude upon the Lord Jesus. It's not premeditated, but she's so... Moved and you know if the gospel doesn't touch your heart, it hasn't touched you. Our gospel has to affect people it has to be visceral it has to be get them in in the heart and and the the, the, the deepest need the most profound need of humanity worldwide is to hear these words, I forgive you. Forgiveness is God's love language with the human race. Here it is love, 1 John 4.10. Here it is love. I, I, I like to elaborate on that. This is love, not what you think is love. This is, this is my idea of love, God says. Here is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved you. And then He tells us how in the very next few words. He tells us how, very concretely. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and, and sent His Son to be the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins. Guys, that's God's love language to us. And it reaches to the root of our being, Because fundamentally, deep down, the human race is lost, is alienated from God, separated from God. And the only lifeline that will save a human being is to be saved through the blood, to be forgiven. And this is a story here about being deeply changed by being deeply forgiven. She's not, she's not premeditated. She hasn't planned this out. But she's so overcome that her tears are falling down on his feet. Enough tears that she can wash his feet. And then wipes his feet with her hair. Again, she's, just, she's beside herself. And, and everyone may be scandalized that this woman is there. But she doesn't care. I love that. I love that part. When when God gets a hold of you and you are forgiven, you are free. You're free of people. You don't care what people think. You don't care how much they care. You're not dependent on them. You're free. She's free. Now there's a lot to be said for propriety, don't get me wrong. I mean, I think we should dress modestly and conduct ourselves appropriately. But this dear lady's undone. She's unraveled. Her her whole life has been turned, let's say, upside up, rather than upside down. And she's just weeping, sobbing, and 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 his tears are falling on his feet, and I can just see her, you know, she's like trying to clean this up, you know, with her hair, and then keeps crying, and then she dries it off, and she takes this ointment, this very, very expensive ointment, and, and puts it on his feet, and... I don't know if any famous painters, famous artists have ever uh, put this story on canvas, but in my mind, I can imagine this would make quite a portrait. Because you have these three outstanding characters. You have, uh, you've of course got the Lord Jesus there. Uh, You've got this woman who's beside herself, and you've got Simon. And I I don't know what Simon looked like, but I imagine he had uh, narrow... Uh, eyes and t- tight lips, <laughs> and, and he's he's really, you know, he's a Pharisee. Pharisees started out well, actually, after the exile, they came back, and they wanted to, uh, you know, get people away from idolatry, and but it's sort of evolved into, uh, uh, for many of them, I'm not saying this is true of all the Pharisees, hey, Nicodemus uh, believed in Jesus, but but for the Pharisees, ritual cleanliness was a big deal. Keeping the rules. Keep the rules. And so we have this woman who's broken all the rules. And we have Simon who's kept all the rules. And, uh, and it bothers him. It really bothers him that Jesus is letting her touch his feet. And that's why he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner, which tells us a lot about Simon, because uh, whatever sort of woman she is, he thinks he's a better sort of person. And in distinction to him, in contradistinction to himself, she is a sinner, which implies what? I am not. So Jesus tells him the story about the moneylender. He said a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? A 500 denarii was probably about maybe a year and a half worth of wages, and 50 denarii maybe two months. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. He turned toward the woman. He said to Simon, he said, Do you you see this woman? Uh, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not ceased. From the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. Jesus didn't candy coat it. Jesus didn't say, well, she's, you know, has had some difficulty in her life, you know. Uh, she's, she's made a few bad decisions. He said, her sins, which are many. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Her, her love was the fruit of that forgiveness. It was not the root. It was not the cause. It was not the reason she was forgiven. It was her response to his love because God's love is cross-shaped. God's love is couched, always couched, in terms of forgiveness and propitiation. Through, from Genesis through Revelation, God's love is expressed in terms of an atoning, blood sacrifice, a propitiatory sacrifice. That's God's love language with the human race. His forgiveness, her love was the fruit of his forgiveness. And then Jesus added this. He said, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those, come back to the, like the main theme of this chapter, those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? He's, he's healed the centurion's servant. He's raised the, 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 from the dead the widow's son. Uh, he's healed the, the, the blind, the deaf, the lepers. Uh, he's preached the gospel to the poor. And now he's forgiving sins. Those are things only God does. And even when we pray for the sick and they're healed, God does that. We don't. Only God can heal the sick, and only God can forgive sinners. Who is this? And, and obviously, Luke, the Holy Spirit through Luke, is telling us this is God. This man, Jesus, is God. And Simon doesn't believe it. Now let me tell you something. When he says, but he was forgiven loves little, I just want to clarify something here. When you read this story at first, it's easy to think that Jesus is saying that the woman is a 500 denarii sinner and Simon is a 50 denarii sinner. And it's easy to come to to, to begin to think that, well, um, she really needed to be forgiven a lot. Uh, Simon, you don't need to be forgiven as much. And, And it would be easy to conclude to think that Jesus is saying that Simon had been forgiven a little, but... That's not what Jesus has said. And that's not the point of this parable. And parables, by the way, are to make a point. It's not that every detail in the parable correlates with the situation here. It's a punchline. You know, it's, it's like a, you know, in a sense, like a good joke, you know, the point of a joke. Did you ever hear about the, 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 the old farmer in, in, in uh, 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 Minnesota? He was looking for a good hunting dog and his name was Zeke, and there was a guy, he had a good hunter and, and retriever, and, and uh, you know, he was selling, and so Zeke came to look at it, and he thought, well I'm gonna show them what this dog can do, and so he took him out, shot, shot a, a bird out over the lake, and said, go fetch, and the dog ran on top of the water, right across the lake, and picked that duck up in his mouth, ran back, dropped the duck at Zeke's feet, and uh, Zeke was unmoved, he was just totally unimpressed, the guy thought, Maybe he didn't see that. Does it again. Same thing. Same reaction. Third time. No reaction from from the old farmer, Zeke. And finally, frustration. He says, do you notice, he says to Zeke, did you notice anything unusual about this dog? And Zeke said, he said, yeah. He said, he he sure can't swim, can he? (laughs) Well... The point of that story is not Minnesota or the lakes or the name of the guy. The point is, you know, there's a punchline and there's a punchline here. Jesus is not telling us this lady is a 500 denarii sinner and Simon, you're only a 50 denarii sinner. And by the way, you've been forgiven a little and that's why you're so stingy and unloving. No, he's, he's, he's not saying that at all. And I'll tell you a few reasons why. If that were true, then there would be some advantage to committing more sins. And, you know, pity the guy that has only a few sins, because when he gets saved, he's not going to have much love. So go out there and, you know, sin it up and then get saved and you'll be farther ahead. You see where that leads. That's totally uh, illogical. That, that dog won't hunt. Okay. Uh, then on the other hand here, uh, the other problem with that is that not only is, has Simon not been forgiven a little, Simon has not been forgiven at all. In John 8 24, Jesus said to the, the Jews and the Pharisees and the scribes, He said, I've told I told you that you will die in your sins. Uh, because if you do not believe that I am He he said, you will die in your sins, meaning that's a, that's a Hebrewism, a Hebrewism when Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am, in the, in the Greek it just says believe that I am, meaning that I am Yahweh, that I'm God, that I'm divine. And we know from this chapter, this Pharisee is among those Pharisees who rejected the counsel of God, and they, he did not believe Jesus was a prophet or that God was with them. And therefore, none of his sins have been forgiven. Simon is dead in sin. And what Jesus is saying is that profound forgiveness produces profound change. Yes, her sins are many. She's been forgiven much. And when a person receives that, that person loves much. But Simon can't go there because he hasn't received forgiveness at all. He just sees this woman and looks at her and has decided, she's a sinner, I'm not. He's blind to his own peril to his own condition and, and cannot see the purpose of Christ coming. He cannot see why this man, why, why do I need this man? You know, if you play the wedding song, I'm not going to dance. If you play the funeral song, I'm not going to weep. I'm not going to respond to John. I'm not going to respond to you. Why do I need you? I'm not a sinner. I don't need you. I just called you to this dinner to check things out, to confirm my own suspicions. Now, here's here's the thing. I think that this applies also to Christians in a slightly different way. If if we are born again, if we're children of God, we have been justified. We have been forgiven. But the scripture says to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That that is a process over time. And and so if you grow in grace, what, what is grace a measure of? What is it for? Is it for perfect people? No, no, no. If you're perfect, you don't need grace. Grace is for sinners. We are saved by grace. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, uh, you know, what, what happens then to a Christian who does not grow in grace or, to put it another way, has a low estimation of the grace of God or a low valuation of their own need for the grace of God? I think this is one reason why Paul wrote, we've talked about Romans chapter 1, 18 to uh, chapter 3, verse 20. I think part of the reason that Paul wrote uh, those verses... We're, we're in Romans 117 he says the gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God and the very next verse he says for the, 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 the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of man has been revealed from heaven. So you have these parallel revelations. They're, 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 they're juxtaposed. You've got a revelation of righteousness against the backdrop of a revelation of unrighteousness because r- r- unless righteousness is revealed it's just a word. It's just a theory. It's just a doctrine. You can, you can know the doctrine of righteousness, but if it's not a revelation, if it's not being unveiled and unfolded to your heart, like it was to this woman, then it's not going to touch you deeply, as deeply. You're still a child of God, still born again, still forgiven. I'm not saying that we'd be in the category of Simon here. But what I am saying is, if we grow in grace... We will grow in our understanding of how badly we needed grace. How much we needed grace. Not like me. When I was saved, I thought I was a nice sinner. I thought I was basically a good sinner. Just needed 25% saving. And, and, and that's just deception. So Paul goes through this litany. You know... I, as I said, I call it a prosecutorial rant because he's going for a conviction against the human race to hold the whole world accountable and to shut every mouth and, and that people will know no one, no human being is saved by their works, good or bad. It's impossible to save yourself. And when you begin to, you know, there's a a building in um, Singapore, it's called Marina Bay Sands, and it's five or 700 feet in the air, and it's got an observation deck. It's the largest cantilevered structure in the world, as far as I know, which means that deck sticks way out from the side of the building. And the sides of that thing are plexiglass. So you're walking out on this platform, And you're looking out straight into the air and you're seeing skyscrapers and water in the distance. And uh, if you're like me, you want to just drop to the floor and, and hold on to the deck. And You'll see these young guys leaning with their back against that plexiglass wall. They're leaning on air, it looks like. Uh, But you you there was one place early they've closed this off But when it opened up you could go upstairs to the infinity pool Which is another bizarre experience when you see water stretching out and just buildings And then you see people swimming in this water It looks like they're just gonna go over the top of the building But there was a staircase up to the infinity pool and the railing was about like that And so you look down and it's 500 feet down there. It's crazy. Not me, you're looking around for the joker who's gonna come up behind you and go, boo! You know? Uh, When you look into Romans, those three chapters, 118 to 320, you're looking into an abyss. You're seeing how far we fell. And not only does it take a revelation of God's righteousness, but it takes a revelation of our unrighteousness apart from Christ. I believe Paul, Paul did not. It's not a matter of belief. Paul absolutely did not write those verses to give us a sin consciousness. He wrote Romans to the saints, those who are called to be saints at Rome. He wrote it to Christians. Okay, And he, he's told Christians in other places, you're the righteousness of God in Christ. You've been justified by His blood. There's no condemnation for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who will lay anything to your charge? Who is He that condemns? Paul knows that. Okay, So why is he telling the Romans this? I believe absolutely it's not to give them a sin consciousness, but rather a consciousness of their redemption. A great man of God, I've said this before in the different meetings, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers of the last century, he said, you cannot appreciate, uh, when someone pays a debt for you, you cannot appreciate, you don't know how much gratitude to have unless you know the magnitude of the debt. The people that are most profoundly affected by the good news are those who understand the bad news that they were set free from. And, and, and that's why sometimes people that come out of the toughest backgrounds are sometimes the freest. Because like this woman uh, who was a sinner, a woman of the city, she, she had no pretense. She, she had no sense that I'm a good person, you know, you know I deserve this or I... And she, couldn't, she, she just couldn't care a Nat's eyebrow what people thought about her. She, she, Jesus has, has set me free. He's untied this burden. He's liberated me from the past, like David in Psalm 51. You know, David, had, David broke about six of the Ten Commandments at least when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then... Uh, had Uriah murdered, but he was guilty of premeditated adultery and premeditated murder, and there was no sacrifice under the law that would atone for that. There was no sacrifice in the law that would make up for that. The penalty was death, and so David's first words, he says three things. He says, Lord, uh, be merciful to me, and the word there, hesed, is the Hebrew word for grace. He appeals to a higher court. He appeals to the jurisdiction of grace that supersedes the law. And then he says, according to your steadfast love, which is a covenant term. He, he appeals to the covenant. He, and he says, blot out my transgressions according to, and one translation says, your motherly compassion, tender motherly compassion. Now, God is a he. Let us be clear about that. But he made women in the image and likeness of God. And when you talk about a mother's compassion, it's a reflection of God. It's tender, loving mercy. He appeals to grace. He appeals to the covenant and God's tender mercy. And he says, Lord, blot it out and purge me with hyssop. And Hebrew scholars tell us that what that means is don't just forgive it, but make it so it never happened. And there's a word that one scholar used. He said, literally, it means you know, like you de ice a plane. Literally, he says, it means de sin me, oh God. Unsin my transgressions. And then he goes on, he goes beyond that. He says, create. Create, that's something out of nothing, a new heart and renew a right spirit within me. That's what David was tapping into. That's why David was a man after God's own heart. Not because he lived perfectly, but because he tapped into the perfect love of God. And this woman did too. And we can too. I believe the more we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord, the more we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And the glory of God was revealed first in the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and it will be revealed further in the coming of Christ. And then we're caught up with him and glorified with Christ. This this woman had tapped into it. This is something Simon knew nothing about. So for, as believers, we're told, grow in grace. You know, I always thought that meant, you know, become more of a superhero Christian, you know. My grandkids can do that thing, I don't know, you know, that, what is it? Oh, never mind, it's not important, (laughs) it's not part of my message. Uh, that's what I thought it was. Become more spiritual, and I, I understand now is become more dependent on the grace of God. Realize that that every breath you take, and how how utterly. I mean, I get you get glimpses of this, and it you almost get in a, in a cold sweat when you think about it. What would have happened if Jesus hadn't come? You know, there's a, there's a, something that happened in, in when I was a. Oh, I was probably in my 20s, and my, my youngest brother was probably in his upper teens. And I don't, I've never told him this story, but um, I thought this is a good analogy uh, of people that are saved but don't really understand how, how deep, Lee, Jesus had to dive into the abyss to save them. We were walking along, I think it's Mercer Street in downtown Seattle, which is a very busy street. It's like, what, six lanes or something now. And traffic moves pretty good along there. I would guess the speed limit's around 45. And uh, we were walking on the sidewalk uh, on Mercer Street, and there was one of those articulated buses. You know the real long ones that, that have that hinge in the middle? As I recall, it uh, was an articulated bus. And my brother, you know, he's he's a kid, and he's flipping something, and it flips it out into the street. And without thinking, he just, you know, he just walks out into the street like this. And I turned around, and I mean, I could weep when I think about it. This articulated bus is barreling down on him. there's, There's no way that bus could stop. And, and, and my brother just went out there, just casually, you know, like a summer stroll, picked that thing up, turned around, walked away, and right behind him. Look, he's saved, but he doesn't know how saved. <laughs> he is. I do. I saw it. I saw what he was delivered from. And the thing that marked people like the Apostle Paul and Peter and Timothy, people that were profoundly changed by the gospel, is they knew what they'd been saved from. Paul was under no illusions. When he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, he must have known, I'm a dead man. But for him, I deserve to die and go to hell. We know, we know he was responsible in part for Stephen's death. We don't know how many other people Paul had a part in. He hauled men and women from other countries back to Jerusalem and imprisoned them. You know, these these men and women that he was going after most likely were were young, married people because older people stay home. They're probably, probably married with kids and he was throwing them into prison. How many of them got stoned and killed? We don't know. And Paul is the one that told us we're new creatures, but he's also the one that said, uh, I am chief among sinners. We were talking about this today in the meeting. There is just such a fine line between having a Christ consciousness, a consciousness of our redemption, and yet not forgetting what we've been delivered from. Paul wrote all those in Christ scriptures, and yet he could say, I'm chief among sinners. I'm foremost among sinners. And he believed that. I don't think he just said that to fill up pages and make people think, well, I'm humble. Any, any man of God you ever encounter, you'll hear them say things like that. I told you, I think last night, Martin Lloyd-Jones told people, you know, he knew people had been impacted by his ministry, and he told one of his closest friends, you make sure that when I'm gone, they remember, I am, I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace and other great men of God. I was so encouraged as I read history and I see these brilliant Christians, I mean Einsteins, of the faith. And their testimony is the same. The closer I get to God, the more I realize how desperate I was. And, and, and not in a cringing, fearful, sinful way, but in a liberating way. They see, this. look what I've been set free from. Through the grace of God. Something else Lloyd Jones said that uh, really sticks with me. He said, The ultimate test of your spirituality is the measure of your amazement at the grace of God. Isn't that something? The ultimate test of your spirituality is the measure of your amazement at the grace of God. In other words, if you're saved and not amazed that you're saved, you might not know yourself very well. But thank God we can. And and what happens when a person begins to understand how profoundly they've been forgiven? And you know, even as Christians it's possible to just accept enough forgiveness to be saved. You know what I mean? Like, some of you don't know because you're not wired the same. And I understand that. But, but, but it's possible to look backwards and think, you know, okay, I'm forgiven. And I just, yes, amen, I'm forgiven. You know, but not breathe it in deeply. Not, not absorb it fully. And, 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 and let yourself uh, experience the fullness of that forgiveness. It's possible to do that. It's possible to hear the words, Jesus loves you, he forgives you, and say, okay, okay, great, 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 great. But, you know, it comes back. It comes back up, and you think about it, and you think you just just feel so, so bad. You you just uh, have to come to the place where you realize, Jesus identified with me hook, line, and sinker. Absolutely became me. He didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for the sins of Joe Purcell. My individual sins. And when that begins to seep into us and percolate into our hearts, I tell you, it produces a a gospel liberty that, that nothing else will. It produces a foundation. You become rooted and grounded in the love of God that surpasses all knowing the breadth, the length, the depth and height of it, and the love of Christ that surpasses knowing. When we breathe that in, take it in, accept that, receive it, and understand, I was that man. But he forgave me completely, just like that woman. It is that deep forgiveness. You can be free to receive liberty and and quit regretting the mistakes, the things of the past, because regret will not move the dial. It won't help. It won't... You just have to accept the fact, He redeemed me. He, he saved me and called me with a holy calling according to His own purpose and grace before time began. So if you think you've blown the ball game and in all this, well, too late, because He knew that before He saved you, and called you, and so on. Amen? Amen, amen, amen. Father, thank you again for the word of God and for this time together with these precious people. We thank you and praise you. And, and Lord, I think I can say this for everybody in the room. Lord, we would like to know the depths of your forgiveness more and more and more. Open our hearts, open our minds to understand our redemption and the liberty, the freedom that we have in Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen.